at the end of the day, go with your mother wisdom. Like I can give you advice, you can read all these things, your provider's gonna tell you things, but the thing that's gonna help you to sleep at night is going with that mother wisdom. If you don't feel like something's right or you feel like it's the right way to go, go with that. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Mother Birth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. Laura and I are here in the studio together in Portland, and we have a special guest with us today up in Seattle. Her name is Angelica Malone. (laughs) Angelica is a lactation consultant and someone who has recently launched an incredible new book called Milk Boss, which we're going to get into and hear all about, which is we're super excited. And we just got our hands on a couple copies last week and are so excited about it so we can't wait to hear more about that angelica do you want to introduce yourself and just tell us a little more about yourself before we get into your story yeah absolutely thank you um so yes i'm angelica malone i'm officially called a lactation educator counselor um, but i also am a childbirth educator and doula and i live here in seattle we recently moved here from guam and i have two girls um, they're four and two years old, and I'm married to my husband, Brett, who's in the military. And so we've been living this kind of nomad life. It's mm-hmm. the same kind of life I had growing up. So just moving all around and through all those travels, just getting the chance to witness women uh, mother in these very unique ways and just to see the way that women uh kind of navigate life in their own unique way. It really has inspired me. It's part of what actually um, allowed me to feel free to become a mother. It was something I didn't know I wanted to do for Mm -hmm. a long time. And just because of that experience, seeing the way that women mothered and lived throughout these different places that I moved to, it really just provoked me to want to start providing support to women here in the U.S. and wherever I lived to empower them to navigate their lives in the way that felt the most natural to them. And so that's where I am just offering services to women and workshops and gatherings and things like that. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. How long have you been in the U S four months? Okay. (laughs) We just got back. Yeah. We were overseas for about six years. Okay. And so when did you, you have a four year old and a two year old. So did you start to take on this work in, you know, in the realm of, of womanhood and and birth work before you had your daughters or kind of during or after? So I started before I had my girls. So previously it's almost like in another life I was in the military. So I was a corpsman. So it's a mix of nursing and medical assisting. And my job in the military was like emergency medicine and, um, helping with, uh, the military members on our ship and providing medical care for them. So that's kind of where I first entered kind of just the whole world of like body awareness and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But during that time, I realized whenever I worked with women, it was much more deep. It was obviously when you see men and they're hurt, they're just like, fix me. Mm -hmm. But with women, whenever, yeah, whenever the women came in, they always had unique stories to tell. Um, And of course, in a medical setting, you don't always get a chance to dive into that, but it plays a huge part of whatever they're going through. Mm -hmm. So during that time is where I began to really realize like, Hey, I want to go into this field, but I want to really specialize in women. And then I uh, decided when I got out of the military that I had already known that I wanted to go into medical field. So I was a pre-med student and I was studying biomedical sciences. And during that time I was volunteering and I began volunteering with an organization that um, was that mentored pregnant refugee and lower income women. So Mm -hmm. I became a mentor to Um, a couple of women who were making that transition from um, actually making that transition into motherhood. And so I would be with them throughout the middle of their pregnancy all the way until, you know, late postpartum months later. And we did everything together, whether it was get supplies for the baby, attend meetings. Um, I was there for their births. I was there when they immediately got home. One of my mentees had like a NICU baby. So I was there with her during that time and getting her to the hospital so that she could give the baby her pumped milk and all of that. So that was my really first um, kind of that 
in-depth experience working with women. And that's where I realized, wow, this work, doula work, the mentoring, that just that really intimate time with a woman is important. And so when I moved from there, I was living in Buffalo, New York. It's when we went to Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And in Puerto Rico is where I really got to also see how women could live this really what I call mosaic motherhood. They could do it in the way that they felt comfortable. So they would have these very multifaceted lives, which also included motherhood, but they felt, but it didn't, and it didn't seem squelching. Motherhood just seemed to be a natural extension of the things that they were already doing. And mm-hmm. so that's also where I kind of felt inspired to have my own child and to feel like I could be very multifaceted as well as being a mother. And so I gave birth to my first daughter and about six weeks into breastfeeding her, we began to have breastfeeding trouble where she just would not latch on anymore. Hmm. And we had been doing just fine for that whole time. So almost two months of exclusive breastfeeding that was going well. But at that six six week mark, um, she just stopped latching and I didn't know what to do. And because I wasn't really surrounded by other birth professionals or people who are kind of traveling in that space. I was definitely around other women, but, um, there was no one there who really specialized in lactation and stuff Mm -hmm. like that to help me when we ran into trouble. So it took us like two weeks to figure out what's going on. And it was really traumatic for my husband and I, that Mm -hmm. those two weeks of literally trying for like an hour or two to get my daughter to latch and she wouldn't latch. I would be in tears. She would be in tears. I would have to go to the pediatrician's office to, you know, to check on her weight or, um, ask him what's going on. And it just was very rough. And I realized there needs to be like more community support in this area. Yeah. You know, I was living yeah. in Puerto Rico where there's tons of community support for every other aspect of life, but with pregnancy and birth, there just seemed to be a lack in that area. I did have a doula, but she didn't feel completely comfortable providing, you know, more advanced breastfeeding support. She, you know, she was used to just the common, yeah. you know, smaller issues. And so, when we ran into that trouble, it was just really clear that there needed to be more community support, more um, comprehensive support for women as they were navigating this new stage of life. And so after we got over that struggle, I realized, you know, I've lived overseas for much of my life. I enjoy this expat life. I may want to do it again in the future. And I know I'll run into other women having babies and wanting to breastfeed. And so I got training so that I could then do that. So I went through UC San Diego Um, and trained as a lactation educator counselor and got my certificate through them. And pretty much, even while I was in the training, there were already women reaching out to me asking for help in my community there in Puerto Rico because there was just such a need. And it's been like that ever since. You know, that was four years ago. And there's never a lack. There's As soon as someone asks me or find out that I um, am a lactation professional, there's always lots of questions and women sharing their stories. And I just began to see that there was a huge need um, for that. And so it also spurred me to then get the other training so that I could really provide comprehensive support. So that really almost like what I was providing for my mentees in Buffalo, but more skilled, you know, Mm -hmm. so that then women beginning in their second trimester could feel like they had support all the way until the fourth trimester where we have other issues like postpartum depression and and, uh, anxiety Mm -hmm. and all of that coming in. Yeah. Yeah. I love your emphasis on really, really finding and lining up the support in advance, not waiting until, you know, you've, you've had the baby or you're having the issues to, to reach out and find the support that you need. Because, you know, having been in those shoes and and walking alongside women in these same stages of life that you're talking about, I find all the time that once you're in the thick of it, like reaching out is super daunting and, yeah, you, know, you don't you don't know who to call and you don't know, you know, you're you're terrified and you're exhausted and you're, you know, maybe dealing with depression or anxiety. You're, you know, all of these things that make it really, really hard to reach out and to especially to reach out in a timely fashion, like like right now Absolutely. when it's, it's happening. And, you know, people people will often suffer for weeks before they reach out for support or don't reach out at all. And I think that lining it up in advance makes all the difference. Yeah. We recently talked with some of our listeners about that in our online community and talked just kind of about like, what are some things you would say like specifically about breastfeeding? Like what is it? And such a common theme was like, I waited too long to get professional support and, or, you know, and I think, you know, you kind of shed, shed the light on something like a lot of places don't have any kind of structured community for that or 
structured support. Mm -hmm. And so it is a lot of reaching out on your own and either you're reaching out to like a private consultant or maybe you've seen some of the ones that are more publicly available to you, you know, in the States there's some more like groups, but you need to find someone who's willing to give you like detailed follow-up, like individual support. Yes. Because yes. Individualized support. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like you get a lot of advice once you start having struggles, whether that's from your peers yeah. or even from your like your care providers, whether that's like a midwife or an OB or even a lactation consultant that works for a clinic. But they're giving you kind of like that general. Here's the first few things to try. But I will say watching my friends and watching women I support. It's when you get that individualized support where yeah. someone's watching you breastfeed your baby multiple times. Yeah. That's when you really yeah. feel that you can turn that corner and find those tools to keep Mm -hmm. moving forward with breastfeeding. That's so true. That's so true. And I just, that's like my con, that's like the constant thing that's ringing through my head is like, how can I reach women prenatally? How Mm -hmm. can I reach women prenatally? And a lot of times the women who do reach out prenatally, who find the support are the women who already know, where all the resources are. They already know about Leche Leak. They already know about midwives. They already know about doulas. The real area that we need to try and penetrate are the areas where the the women who don't see themselves reflected in the doula world, who don't see Mm -hmm. themselves reflected. You you know what I mean? And it's, it's, yeah. And that's because women are all different. And right now there's kind of a connotation around the holistic realm of doulas and stuff like that and lactation counselors. And so they think if I'm not that kind of woman already, Mm -hmm then those are not for me, mm-hmm. which is totally not true because doulas and lactation counselors can suit whatever woman is in need. Yeah. But the, the, I think the role of, you know, our responsibility as birth professional is just to find a way to reach all different types of women prenatally, mm-hmm. you know? And so sometimes that means alternative routes, going ways that going places or, you know, offering our services or advertising or whatever it may be in the areas where um, women who don't who wouldn't seek us out can find us. Yeah. I've thought about that so much and just practicing, you know, in the hospital now as a labor nurse and then moving forward, people always ask me like, Oh, when you become a midwife, do you want to work in the hospital or outside the hospital? And I let, you know, I, I love supporting birth in both contexts, but I think the part of me that feels like people who need me or need someone like me are not going to seek me out outside the hospital. Mm-hmm. They're going to go wherever their nurse tells them to go. Or, you know, yeah. in my community, mm-hmm. women that I feel like could use this support mo- most like most often go through a county clinic. And then they are transferred to a private practice and then they're transferred back to the county clinic. So they're they're missing that even that postpartum support from like an individual provider. They kind of go back yeah. to that normal. Their healthcare goes back to what it was before. And I, I ask the same kind of questions like, how do we find those people? How do we how do we move? this into that light you know I don't I don't yeah. know <laughs> it's a great question <laughs> so is that something now that you're living in Seattle that you feel is your something you're seeking out absolutely yeah. absolutely and you know just for myself what I've been trying to what I've been brainstorming over these last few months is you know where is it that I'm seeing women um go that they're not already like there are not already people with my skills sharing. Mm -hmm. And so that could be like a natural nail salon that could be, um, a bake shop. And I know those don't seem very rare or like kind of weird to, to go there, but if you can somehow figure out a way to share with their clientele, Hey, there are these support people out there that are between, you know, a psychologist and an MD that can provide support to you, you know, we're here. So that's kind of just, I've just been brainstorming, trying to figure out ways that I can get myself out there. Yeah. And so that's, that's a big part of what I'm wanting to do here in Seattle. I want to do workshops, a lot more workshops and gatherings, maybe in boutiques and places where, you know, women are going for their regular things, looking for books, looking for body care items, looking for clothes. And then hopefully along the way, they stumble upon me and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know this was out there. You don't know how many times I'll be somewhere and somehow like the, I'll talk to someone and I'll say, do you know what a doula is? And they're like, no, I've never heard of a doula before. Mm, (laughs) And in my world, like everyone I talk to, all my mom friends are like, uh, yeah, I know what a doula is. I had a doula for everyone in my births. My sister had a doula. I did it. I do look for someone. Um, but I just, I have to keep myself, um, 
I have to make sure I'm not just in a, what I call a holy huddle around all the yeah. people who already agree with my philosophy. Yeah. I am constantly figuring out ways to step outside that bubble so I can reach those moms yeah. who, um, who wouldn't have found me otherwise. Yeah. And it's very true that these services, whether we're talking about, you know, birth support through doulas or lactation support, these are services that people of privilege have access to. Like we can't, Mm -hmm. we can't pretend that that's not true. I mean, you know, it, for, for most people, it costs money to have a lactation consultant come to their home, you know, and for most people it costs money to have a doula attend their birth. And I think that those are that, that right there is, is an obstacle that has to be, you know, it has to be acknowledged. Um, and, and there's obviously so many different components of, of working with that, but so much of it is just the, the awareness, the access, the, like, do you even know that this exists? Because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if you're not, you're not maybe, you know, in, in, in a circle where all of your friends hired a doula and are raving about it at, you know, your mm. baby shower, <laughs> You know, like that's just not the reality for everyone, even if it is for, for me. And I, I love too the perspective that, that it must give you to have worked in all of these different, you know, cultural settings where you're, you know, you have this perspective from living in the U S from being in the military, from living in these different expat, you know, settings. Um, and, and you're, you're from Guam. Is that right? No. So I grew up in a military family as well. So um, I traveled, I've traveled my whole entire life, every, about every two to three years since okay. I'm 30 now, since then I've just traveled and lived into a new place. So mm. no, I don't really have a hometown. Okay. So growing up, what was the, the context that you saw, you know, birth and like early postpartum, you know, transitions, like how did you observe that in your life before, you know, reaching the point where you were considering, where you were doing this work in the military and considering having kids of your own? Um, so growing up, uh, I mainly only heard about and saw my mom's experience. Yeah. Do you have siblings? I did not. Yes. I have two younger sisters and a younger brother. And my mom, um, had vaginal natural births for all four of us, uh, breastfed all four of us, she did do like accommodation feeding at some point in time because she had to return back to work in the military and wasn't able to um, continue exclusively breastfeeding. So her story was the only one I knew about. And I know she even had a, a rough labor labor with one of us. Um, but all in all, the way that she talked about birth and breastfeeding was that it was like another event in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say like, I didn't have any fears around it. I didn't really know that there were struggles with it. Uh, that was my only understanding of it. I didn't hear a lot of, I didn't hear any birth stories, I think, or any breastfeeding stories from other women, other mothers mm-hmm. um, around us. That just wasn't something we talked about. And my mom was in the military, so she wasn't really like, that wasn't her job doing anything in that field. So that was all I knew. Mm -hmm. And then I knew the medical aspect of it once I joined the military and I was in college. So that was pretty much it. And I think that that also really benefited me because not only did I not really have a huge context about birth and breastfeeding, um, by the time that I did get pregnant, I was living in this environment where it was a third culture. So um, whatever the standards were in Puerto Rico for the Puerto Rican women or what the culture was, I wasn't really a part of that. You know, mm-hmm. there was a, there was somewhat of a barrier between me and that culture. So I was able to come up with my own idea of how I wanted to do it. And I was mainly just inspired by certain women. And so they were who I kind of wanted to emulate. Like I saw them being very active. I heard that's how I that's how I was reintroduced to doulas again, because I had heard about doulas while I was working with the women in Buffalo, mm-hmm. but I didn't really think about having my own doula until one of the women who had given birth before me living in my community mentioned, Hey, there's this amazing doula. You should meet her. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was it. Um, but I will say as far as motherhood was concerned, I also, I did see a lot of women and this was not because they told me this was just my observation, my mom, her friends and things like that. Motherhood was very one way. You were either a stay-at-home mom or you were a working mom. You didn't, there were not female entrepreneurs because these are all military spouses for the most part, Mm -hmm. except for local women. And again, that was a third culture. So whatever I saw them doing didn't really seem like a reflection of what I could do. It was like just, it was another 
thing, like another language. This is another way of their living. So as far as what reflected on me and how I thought I could live, I mainly saw working mom, stay at home mom. Mm -hmm. And so that is, I think, what kind of created this kind of trepidation within me about becoming a mother because I didn't identify with either one. And then I also didn't see women doing like entrepreneurial things. I didn't see women with their own like creative endeavors or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was, that was kind of my experience. So you, you mentioned this earlier where that was kind of when you got to the point where you felt you could have kids when you, you kind of mentioned the term mosaic motherhood, where you felt like you could be this woman with all these different, you know, aspects and, and pieces of you. How, where, how did you get to that point? That was in Puerto Rico. So that was after um, college, that was after the military, after college. And then um, my husband and I were living there. And that's where I began to, and that was, so I was living again overseas, you know, it's a U.S. territory, but um, I began to be more immersed in culture. So as growing up, as a kid, I couldn't really, I didn't really communicate a ton with um, people enough, I think, to feel like that could be me. But when I was in Puerto Rico, because I spent a lot of time, I was going to church and different get togethers and book clubs with women all in the community, including local women. Mm -hmm. I began to feel more like I could identify with them. And that's where I began to feel like, you know what, maybe I could do motherhood like they do it, though. I may have previously thought of them as being different than me. No, I can embrace some of the facets of life that they that they do like I could have a business and be a mother Mm -hmm. I could travel with my kids um outside the military like I could do it for us for fun um and that that's where I began to see that mosaic motherhood in Puerto Rico yeah I think that that is really a key in kind of a lot of people's process of finding themselves before becoming a mom Mm -hmm. is seeing themselves and other people's mothering And I think Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of power in that kind of towards that energy that you talk about where it's like reuniting the community of of women because Mm -hmm. what, you know, and I I can relate a lot to what you said as far as growing up and, you know, now because of what I do, I've asked my mom tons of questions about what her births were like or breastfeeding and things like that. But it's not like it wasn't something that was discussed throughout my childhood by any means. But now, you know, I have this other perspective is as this is my work and my life and I watch other women who this is their work in their life and watch them raise their kids talking with them about this and you know I think inevitably your kids will grow up with a very different background and a very different picture of what motherhood looks like and but you know I think for us as individuals we kind of find that in our own space and some people have to be the pioneers like we've talked about this on the show but in so many ways, Melissa was a pioneer in her community because she didn't have a lot of friends that were moms when she became a mom. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to like have these, you know, these like events that become these markers for you. And it's like, you know, it sounds like you changing your context a lot helped you kind of build in that that belief. Like I can be myself and be a mom. And I think that that yes. is a really powerful thing to find. And it's something you fight for, you know, especially as you transition to being a mom and having a newborn and coming on the other side of pregnancy but I think that that's a really kind of important thing for us to build in the communities that we're a part of too Mm -hmm. very true what was birth like in Puerto Rico (laughs) (laughs) okay so it was it was eventful (laughs) um so I knew somehow that I wanted a natural vaginal birth at least I wanted a, a shot at yeah. that so um that that was part of the reason we also hired a doula is because people began to share with me like hey you know it might be really good to have someone there who can help um help prepare you for birth so she was both our, both our doula and childbirth educator and then um so we hired her and I knew what I wanted and as I was on the west part of the island and I had an OBGYN and I saw her early in my pregnancy and I began to share with her the things that I was looking for, you could tell that she was not on board with that. And I was just talking about basic things like rooming in, um, uh, or do you require vaginal checks at the end of my pregnancy? Um, just small questions. And she really didn't honor them at all. She acted like they were not 
real issues. And she, when I asked about the rooming in, she was like, oh, I don't really know. I don't think they do that there, but I don't know. And there just seemed to, there is a big barrier between women and their providers in Puerto Rico and really even men and their providers. But in Puerto Rico, there's definitely this idea that you don't question your provider. You don't ask them questions. You don't question their advice. And in pregnancy, it's even more so. Women are really pushed to have inductions and pushed to do things that they don't feel comfortable with. Things like, I know we live here in the Pacific Northwest where birthing rights are very Mm -hmm. strong. And there's a lot of um, push for women to advocate for themselves and to ask questions. And I think we know just in the context of the mainland United States, we're pretty progressive in this Mm -hmm. area. But if you were to take that and I think the experience in Puerto Rico and compare it to one of the least progressive parts of the United States, we'd probably find Puerto Rico to be even behind Mm -hmm. that. There is definitely a movement of people trying to change that and women who are definitely advocating for themselves. But the overall, I think we would find it to be pretty sad because of that fact, women are not allowed, are not typically encouraged to ask questions. They labor together in communal rooms, and not that there's a problem with that, but when you do that in Puerto Rico, they don't allow you to have a support person there, so you cannot have your partner, you cannot yeah. have a doula. Um, so if you're looking to have a natural vaginal birth, that sets you up for, you know, a really rough time. Um, and then there are not an abundance of childbirth education classes or breastfeeding classes. Those are very, very rare. And if you're going to find one, it's going to be in a hospital, most likely in one of the major cities like San Juan or Mayaguez. And that's not easily accessible to most women. So I was living on the west side of the island. I knew I wanted to have a vaginal natural birth if possible. We had a doula. And when I realized I wasn't going to be able to even advocate for myself well with that provider, we chose to go with a provider on the east side, so in San Juan, the main capital. And he was also American trained, like U.S. trained. So he was used to a lot of the questions that, quote unquote, American women would Mm -hmm. ask about birth. So the things like rooming in, am I going to be offered the golden hour, things like that, he was familiar Mm -hmm. with. He also was a high risk OB, though, because, um, because I chose this person, he ended up being he ended up also being high risk. And so he, one of the things I think I'm really thankful for is he saw me as this very low risk Mm -hmm. patient and he didn't feel like he, I don't, I think it could have played out in a very opposite way where he could have thought of me like his high risk clients or patients and really hovered. But I think he took the opposite approach and was like, you know, she's seeing me. I know why she's seeing me. I was very clear about why I was seeing him. And he was pretty much like, you know what? I can tell this woman cares for herself. She's pretty well versed in birth and stuff. And he was very hands off. So, um, when it came time to give birth, his, but he also worked with a partner and his partner had the completely opposite approach, very aggressive, not, um, not willing to work Mm -hmm. with you, not open to questions. So when I actually went into labor, I, my water broke and I didn't have, um, contractions for like 10 hours, but I had to drive two hours to the hospital. So we ended up stalling for a really long time at home before driving over We drove over to his office and he told us to go to the hospital. We were admitted at the hospital and he wanted me to start Pitocin pretty early on. And I didn't start the Pitocin until like hours later because I was hoping to let things happen naturally. Um, But we ended up starting Pitocin eventually and I was laboring by myself in one of these, um, it's like a triage room. So there's literally just like a curtain between many different women all laboring. So there could be women early on in their labor like myself, but there are also women who are possibly even near transition. Mm. But if there was not a room open and uh, you you didn't have, like we also paid to have a private mm. room for recovery. And so we, like we were, it was really crazy. So we finally, I labored in that room by myself for a while. I was probably close to five, six centimeters when they finally took me into the room with my husband and my doula. And my doula and my husband had to really fight the nurses and say, hey, she wants to be alone. She wants to have the lights down low, all this kind of stuff. That's all very rare in mm. Puerto Rico. Um, they're like thinking we're kind of crazy. The fact that I had a doula was pretty yeah. crazy. Um, but they, they, I think the provider really put a lot of trust in my doula and my husband and I, and he left us alone That's for the nice. most part. And so I labored with the two of them all the way until the end. And he kind of, he came in and checked me Um And by the time I think I was like seven centimeters, they turned off the Pitocin. He said, you know what? I'll let you labor by yourself. He left, um, came back a few hours later and checked me. I was uh, fully dilated. And I told him I didn't want coaching during labor or excuse me, during pushing or anything like that. 
And he said, okay. And we had to make a compromise. He was like, I'll leave the room, but you must do an internal fetal monitor. And so I know in the States, they typically don't do internal fetal monitors unless your baby is possibly in distress or you're not getting a good reading on the monitor with an external fetal monitor um, or something like that. But for us to be able to have, and that's the thing I also like to share with women is like, keep your goal in mind, your main goal in mind, don't be rigid. And so for us, I knew the most important thing to me was trying to have this vaginal birth. And so I said, okay, let's do the internal fetal monitor. If you're going to allow us to push without anyone hovering over us and all of that. And so he left and we pushed and pushed. And finally, my daughter was like almost out. My doula ran out to get the doctor. He came back in, we pushed her out and that was that. But throughout the whole experience too, like everyone is speaking Spanish and I don't speak Spanish fluently, but thankfully for our doula, she was bilingual. So she was able to interpret for my husband and he could understand what the nurses were saying and all of that. So it was pretty crazy, but it turned out really well. I think it's crazy that he let you like push on your own, like that he was, I'm I'm sure Lara has more, you know, experience with that kind of thing, but Mm. that just seems like the, the last thing that he would be willing to give up in that situation, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, we prayed a ton for that experience and I'm so grateful. And I know for um, some, they're like, oh, well, that wasn't, you know, completely holistic, but it was like for Puerto Rico, that was monumental. Um, And then also when I I was in my recovery room the next day, his partner came in. So he was off shift or whatever it is. His partner came in to do like my discharge papers or whatever it may be. And he berated me because he had heard about like me delaying the Pitocin. He'd heard about me having the doula there and um, pushing on my own. And he did. He came in and was like, you know, none of that would have happened if I was on. Thanks. So they, they, yeah, like they are, it's very hostile. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it's sad to say that because I love Puerto Rico so much. Um, but it is very hostile, especially if you're, if you're wanting to be an informed patient and you really want to advocate for yourself, it is very hard. I think it's very difficult to explain, you know, to people who, like you said, kind of living in, it's not even just the, I mean, the Northwest specifically obviously has a bubble about birth, but even, you know, to most people and the generation of most of our listeners, that there would be a circumstance where you're not making decisions in yeah. this in this context, like in the context of women's health care and birth, like and having a baby. And I think there are many, many places, most places is, is what, exactly what you're describing. And some of mm-hmm. it, you know, some of it comes from what you would think would be like a traditional, like, you don't know, maybe it's a male female culture thing where it's like, I'm educated and you're not. And some of it just comes from like, a, nope, this is just how we do it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if you have your baby here, you have to do it this way. And I think, you know, thinking on that, like you said, it's so, there's so much intention and so much pushback on you and on your, you know, your doula and your husband to stand up and to advocate. And in yes. a way that we just don't have to do here, here we do it with a lot of decisions, I think. Yeah. You know, you're almost you're navigating advocacy in a decision decision basis and you get to have lots of conversations about those decisions whether it's prenatally hopefully also like in the context in the hospital but for a lot of people even in this you know in er- certain areas in the United States but definitely abroad there's no conversations mm-hmm. like you were saying mm-hmm. it's just, there's a there's yeah. a huge separation between provider and patient to the point where it's like you you don't get any you know you don't really get any say yeah I had just an inkling of that experience with in, you know, during my pregnancy with my first and and honestly, truly just an inkling. But, you know, I had moments with my care provider where I had concerns or I had preferences that she was not comfortable with. And she really tried to just shut me down. She tried to just say like, no, like that's, that's my business to know that information. And, and like, you're not, you know, you don't have the education or the experience to like really have an opinion on that. And I just, that obviously was not the way I felt about it. Um, and so we had a lot of conflict, you know, in the end, I mean, I was still to be, you know, to be blunt, I was still a white woman in, you know, a a birth bubble city and I got my way, you know, but that's not, that's not the case for, for many, many people. Um, were you afraid that that other doctor might, would maybe be on duty when you went into labor? How are you planning to navigate Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Oh yeah. It was one of my biggest fears. Um, I don't know how I got over that fear because 
I do think that if it was a strong enough fear, it would have really prevented me from being able to progress. And maybe it did. Maybe it was a part of what kept me from having contractions for yeah. a while. Um, but for some reason, I guess, like I knew that my husband was there. I knew that our doula was there. And I knew that I was a strong woman. And also not, not that if you're not a strong woman, you can't, you, you know, you won't be pressured by providers, but I guess there were just more things telling me that it was going to be okay mm-hmm. than things telling me that it wasn't going to yeah. be okay. And actually when my water broke that morning, he was the one who answered the on-call, the other provider. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also told me, I Say, go I was going to say that's, that's probably exactly why you didn't have contractions <laughs> for a few hours. I mean, that makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah. Now that I like, yeah, now that I have more uh, training and education, I'm like, oh yeah, that could easily have been why. But, um, I think somehow I found out that he was off going. Maybe it was when I went and actually went to the hospital, like, excuse me, went to the, my provider's office hours, hours later after that early water break. Um, but how did I get over it? I don't think I really got over it. I think I just knew, I think I, I also was really passionate about listening to birth stories, listening, reading books and all that. And so I knew that it was possibly going to be a fight. Mm-hmm. And though really a, a pregnant woman should not be prepping to fight in labor because that can <laughs> stall your labor and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I yeah. think I just had really mentally prepared and my husband was really mentally prepared. And my husband is totally, I mean, now he is, he's like a birth junkie, but, um, he, he was so well informed that I felt like, and he didn't feel alone because he had our doula and our doula was super hardcore. Like I think she went on to go to midwifery school. So I think we just really felt like a team, yeah. the three of us. We we felt like we were there and in it together. Um, maybe th- then maybe that was it. I don't really know. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you to me, it sounds like you were listening to your, to your intuition, like mm-hmm. that line that there were more things telling you that it was going to be OK than things telling you that it mm-hmm. wasn't like that's just pure intuition you know you don't really have yeah. any data I mean in fact the data is telling you like maybe you know the opposite the opposite <laughs> but you're you still just somehow have this inner you know this inner sense this inner intuition that you know it and not that you know exactly what the outcome will be but just that like it's safe to proceed mm-hmm. you know exactly yeah. oh yeah yeah. And I'm a huge advocate for now telling women that, especially when I meet first time moms who are asking me questions. And I say, girlfriend, at the end of the day, go with your mother wisdom. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I can give you advice. You can read all these things. Your provider is going to tell you things. But the thing that's going to help you to sleep at night is going with that mother wisdom. If you don't feel like something's right or yeah. you feel like it's the right way to go, go with that. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Go with your mother wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> was your second birth with the same provider in the same setting or? Oh no, it was amazingly, <laughs> it was amazing on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So <laughs> I still say that that first birth was really great, but the second one was on Guam. We, um, we decided to go to a birth center and I'll say like, this is another thing I share mamas with mamas. Don't be afraid to switch insurance or whatever you mm-hmm. have to do, switch providers at the yeah. end. This time we were, yeah. And I was afraid of that the first time, not that I really had other options, but I was really afraid of the idea of switching and changing. Yeah. But yeah. the second time we got to Guam, there was a military hospital that had providers. I think they even had a midwife on staff, though you were not guaranteed to see that midwife mm-hmm. in labor. And I knew this time I do not want to leave it up to whoever's on call. Yeah. So we switched insurance companies where we had to pay a deductible when you could have, if we went with the insurance that we were already on, we didn't have to pay anything. Mm -hmm. And I think they also scare you into like, you might have to pay. And it's like, I am so glad we paid. My husband's so glad we paid the peace of mind, the family unity that came with us having to pay this a little bit out of pocket was worth it. So we switched insurances when we got there. I was able to go to see the birth center out in town and they have CNMs on staff certified nurse midwives. And then they also have two physicians on staff. So the, the birth center is run by two very holistic minded OBGYNs. Um, and as long as you're low risk, and even if you're moderately, um, high risk, I think that if you have gestational diabetes, that's well maintained, I think they'll continue to see you. But, um, when I knew that, that they had two OBs on staff, they had like four midwives. One had been in practice for like over 30 years in the United States, private practice before she came to Guam. Um, I just knew that was where we wanted to go. Mm-hmm. They to- they allowed unlimited amount of family or friend support into the birthing room, and that's big on Guam. Families, families, family and community is 
number one. Same thing on Puerto Rico, uh, in Puerto Rico. So the idea that my daughter could be there, my husband was going to be there. If I wanted a doula, the doula could be there. If I had a girlfriend that was going to come in and watch my daughter, that all really resonated with me. And so I said, there's, there's no amount of money that can replace that. And so we decided to go with a nurse midwife that we, we really loved. She just had a really great personality. Like I said, there was like four or five midwives you could choose from one who had been in practice for like 30 years. There was a newer midwife, um, just very different personalities among the midwives, which I loved as well. Mm -hmm. There was definitely one for like all the different kind of mothers who are, you know, getting ready to give birth. If you're a young mother and feeling a little, um, new to it. So we found a midwife that we loved. She gave us her number. You could book her, which means that she would be guaranteed to be there when you delivered. Mm -hmm. And when I went into labor, it's funny. My husband ran a half marathon that morning. He didn't (laughs) know I was going to go in labor, obviously. And we kind of just gambled in our head. We're like, he was like, what are the chances? I said, babe, I think that you're going to give, I'm going to go into labor when you do this half marathon. So I drive him to the starting line of the half marathon at like three or four in the morning. And I think on the way home, I was like, oh man, today's the day. I didn't have any contractions or anything, but I was like, I think today's the day. And through the course, the part of the course ran by our house and when he got by our house a few hours later, I didn't tell him like I was, I was starting to have contractions by that time. And I just let it be. I was like, you know, let him finish the race. (laughs) And he finished it. And we picked him up at the starting line, uh, me and my daughter. And I was like in my robe sitting on the front of our car waiting for him. And when he got over there, he was like limping and everything. And when he got in the car, I said, I think that I'm in labor. (laughs) Please tell me, please tell me he didn't make any like endurance sports labor analogies. No, no. But he does try and tell me that like he was having a hard time at the same time that I was laboring. I was like, Oh no, 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 no. You don't get it. You don't get to pull that. Uh, But yeah, so we drove back to the house and him and my daughter went to sleep and I just kind of started getting into the groove. I think we made food and ate. Um, I think I laid down for a little bit. I was on my computer. I just did all the things that I had heard do. Mm -hmm. Don't put your, don't let your mind start thinking about the labor. Just relax. I didn't tell anyone we had hired a doula. I thought I didn't need a doula, but my husband was like, Oh no, the doula is for me. (laughs) So we had hired a doula and I did. And I think maybe halfway through, uh, I kind of woke up and I was like, yeah, the contractions are becoming more normal and more regular and all that. And so he called the doula and our midwife and I love our midwife so much because I told her and she could tell my personality. I said, you know what? I'm probably not going to tell you when I'm in labor. And of course, that's so cruel. That's not something you should do. Now that I think about like, if that was me, I would never want to hear that from a mom. But um, she was like, okay. And I think she told my husband secretly, like, you tell me when she's in labor. Yeah. So um, when I woke him to tell him like things are getting pretty active, he called our doula and our midwife and let them know what was going on, what stage I was like, what I was like, kind of some of the symptoms. And I think they knew because he had called that I was probably pretty far along in labor Um, because I don't even really remember him calling. So I labored on my own. My daughter was napping. I got in the shower a little bit. I remember just snacking, being in the kitchen, swaying. I really love this one group called the Gypsy Kings. So I just remember playing Gypsy Kings on Pandora and listening to them. And finally, I woke him and I was like, I think that I would need you to start pressing on my back or some kind of massage on my back. And then he's like, okay, I'll do that. So he starts massaging my back and stuff. And he's like, maybe we should time these. Hmm. And I was really against that. I wanted it to be just completely hands off. Hmm. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to start paying attention because I didn't go into labor on my own, like with active contractions and everything, regular contractions on my own last time. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how long it would take this time. And I didn't want to start paying attention too soon and then obviously have this very long labor and be watching the whole time, you know, watching the clock. But he was like, I think we should time them. So he was timing them and rubbing my back. And I just remember him one time like whispering to me, I can't time anymore and rub your back. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, what? And he's like, I think we should go. And I said, no, no, I don't want to go. And then they tell me that I'm not in labor or I'm not progressing. And so I think he let me stall for like, 20 minutes. And then eventually he's like, I'm going to load up our daughter and I'm going to load up our bags and I'll come back to get you. And I remember him coming back to get me. And I do this little like roundabout, like three times where I go to like, get my purse. 
I'm like, oh, wait, I have to go to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom. I go to the front door and I'm like, oh, wait, I need to grab this. And I grab something. I'm like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom, go to the front door. And then finally he's like, let's go get in the car. So (laughs) I get in the car. And as soon as we drive off the base and we're about halfway there, the contractions, like, I think I was in transition. I remember just arching out of my seat through the console, like the middle console Mm -hmm to relieve the pressure in my stomach because I'm sitting. And so when you get the contractions, I felt like that pressure was just like making it more intense. Mm -hmm. So I was like arching from the passenger seat through the back console Mm -hmm. with every contraction. I just remember doing that over and over again. And when we finally got there and I had a contraction, our doula comes out and meets me at the door of the car and she starts rubbing my back and everything. And then we walk in to the birth center and we're at like the nurse's station and I get down on the floor and I have a contraction and I see my midwife and I think my midwife says, all right, let's go. So she, we go into the room and I think she says, I'm supposed to put you on the monitor. So we should put you on the monitor. So I think she puts me on a monitor and she's like, you know what? You're fine. It's time to push. And I'm like, what? <laughs> she's like, you know, no, she says, I think you're ready to push. And I was like, what? I was like, you didn't check me or anything. She said, you told me you didn't want to be checked. <laughs> and that's something that to this day, really, I am like so thankful for because she was so respectful mm-hmm. that she was like, even at the end, I remember her saying she doesn't want to be checked. And so I'm not going to check her. And she was skilled enough to say, you know, I can tell that this mom's at the mm-hmm. end that she's fully or dilated or she's almost ready to push. And so I said, no, no, you can check me. So she finally checked me and she's like, yeah, you're 10 centimeters. So I walk into the bathroom. I'm like, I think I need to go to the bathroom. So I go into the bathroom and I don't even sit on the toilet. I just squat right in front of the toilet and I start pushing. And my husband comes in. I remember my daughter in the corner um, at the front door with my doula eating Triscuits and my doula is videotaping. And I think there's like a nurse or two in the room and we're just pushing. And she comes like, and my doula tells my husband, I think you should wash your hands. So he washes his hands. And I remember reaching down, feeling her head coming out or like getting ready to come out. And then he, he, I think her head comes out. And I think my doula or excuse me, my midwife has her hands like near the floor to keep her head from hitting the floor. Mm-hmm. And as soon as her head comes out, he's like, all right. She says, all right. And lets my husband put his hands down there. And I like push some more and she comes out and he's holding her. Mm-hmm. And he's like, do you want to hold her? And I just remember my arm shaking. I said, just give me one moment. My arms are shaking. Mm-hmm. And I was squatting. So they say, you know, you can sit down. I said, oh, I can sit down. And they said, yeah. So I sit down right there (laughs) and he hands her to me. And I just remember being so thankful, thankful for all the staff. Like they were just respectful and kind. And one of the nurses was like, would you like me to turn down the lights so she can open her eyes? And she turned down the lights and no one talked. Everyone just sat there. It was just like a room full of women. And my husband just, I just, at that moment, I said, this is how birth is supposed to be. You know, obviously it would have been wonderful too, if, you know, for women who can have birth at home, but just the idea that that's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be gentle. It's supposed to be kind. It's supposed to be loving. It's supposed to be communal. Mm. You know, I just was like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful and blessed for the first birth experience I had. But I think if I, if I could share that second experience with every woman, I would, I would hope that she would be able to, you know, have that experience because it's just, I said, that is what, that is what birth feels like when you can, when you feel protected and safe and all of that. Yeah. And it, and it really isn't about like how the birth happened. Like you could feel that way, you know, even if you needed certain interventions or even if, you know, the baby, you know, had, was in distress at some point and, you know, things, things looked a little grim, like at the, no matter how, how things play out, like what you're talking about, those yeah. words you use, like that communal support and that exactly. safe place, like that, that can exist yes. for every woman, regardless yeah, of Yeah, that's other... the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's, that's been my experience too. Like the differences between my births and I've, they've all been very, very different from each other. But, you know, th- with, re- with, res- you know, respect to the details, like they didn't matter. It was just about the support and about that safe place. And that's, so so huge I'm yeah not feeling like you're in battle or not feeling like mm-hmm. you know you're having to you know fight for what you want but feeling like everyone there has your best interest at heart yeah you know and you can have that with any birth experience definitely yeah. 
I think that's something that I, it's such a struggle to try to explain as far as being someone who attends birth. So, you know, I, I frequently say like I watch people give birth for a living and mm-hmm. the idea of that is, is you find that space, like Melissa was saying in so many contexts, but what it really feels like, you know, whether or not you're a religious person, it's not about religion. It's, it's a very sacred space. And yeah. when, when a woman, you know, pushes her baby and the baby takes its first breath, there's so much space there yeah. to feel, mm-hmm. to feel empowered, really. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Definitely. I'm really curious what your perspective is on what the difference between these two different cultures that you birthed in was, because, you know, you mentioned that they, they both share many characteristics. Like they have these very, very communal, like family centric cultures. And yet one has like this very, you know, medical, medicalized, um, you know, gap between care providers and patients. Mm -hmm. And the other is just a lot more integrated. So what do you perceive as the difference in those two settings? Well, so I never actually thought of it until right now, which is strange because they are both U.S. territories and one's actually way further away from the U.S. Um, In all honesty, I think it has a little bit to do with corruption. Mm. I know that's like such a, there's just a bit more organization on Guam. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's because there's still a very strong military presence. Mm. And so there's a lot of Americans there or, you know, not America, everyone, you know, the the local people on Guam consider themselves Americans. Mm. Uh, But that's, I I, I don't know the the structure of the government. I don't know. But I will say that there's just a very, it's, it's more organized on Guam. Yeah. And so maybe there was just a more of a, also I know, excuse me, on Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico, I don't believe that nurse midwives, CPMs, PAs, nurse practitioners are recognized in the health, in the healthcare hmm. setting. Yeah. So, it's so little, it may not even be possible. Yeah. It's more dichotomized. You have your, you know, your OBs and then your like midwives that are practicing out of you know out of any sanctions yes yeah that makes sense well I was just curious about that because you've described these two obviously very different you know you had you had great experiences but you in one you had to really really work hard to to make that experience happen and it sounds like in Guam that was a lot more you know accessible to have that kind of experience yeah yeah. yeah, and I will say on in Puerto Rico there was a wonderful midwife, mm. um, but she practiced only out of hospital birth. And yeah. if anything went, um, if any for any reason one of her clients had to be transferred, she was not allowed even in the hospital. Mm. Um, and for and that and that also for on that side of the island that where we lived, you couldn't have a doula even in your hospital room. So if you were a mom planning an out-of-hospital birth, you have a very strong vision of what you'd like your birth to be. And to then be transferred to a hospital where you can't even have a doula, that's very traumatizing. And the likelihood of, like, that's why I had to leave the west side of the island and give birth on the east side because those hospitals don't have a very holistic model at all. Rooming in is not possible. The golden hour is not allowed. Um, Most babies are given a pacifier or water or a lot of these, what I would call ancient practices that here in the U.S., if someone told you they did that in the hospital, you would think, what? They are mm-hmm. still doing on the west side of the island in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's definitely very interesting. Yeah. So as we're kind of heading towards wrapping up here, I'd love to hear a little more. Well, first I'd love to hear, if we can kind of bounce around just a tiny bit, I'd love to hear the end of the story that you told about your daughter and the issues that she was having with breastfeeding around six weeks. Just, I'd love to hear kind of how that resolved for you. And then if you want to just kind of take us into, um, the work that you're doing now, the book that you just launched and how that, you know, how we can, we can show people what you're up to. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, after, those two weeks, we saw our pediatrician one of the last times, and like I said, nobody watched us do a feeding, nobody came to our house, none of that happened. So 
I think this is why it took us two weeks to actually get resolution to the problem. But eventually they noticed that she had gas, something mm-hmm. that a, a pretty trained lactation professional would notice pretty early on. If she comes and watches you do a feeding, she'll yeah. see the way the baby, baby reacts at the breast, the way they latch on or actually don't latch, but look like they're latching and come right back off. Mm-hmm. All of those signs they will notice very early on. But of course, no one was watching its feeding, so they didn't see it. But eventually our pediatrician offered a recommendation, which were probiotic drops for babies. And he knew, I think, that we were kind of more holistic minded. So he didn't offer like medications. He said, you know, I think that if you give her these probiotic drops in a few days, you'll see resolution. And I began to just look all over the internet to see if anyone had used them. And I found that so many people had been using them and had really great results. So we gave Mm -hmm. them to her. And literally within a couple of days, she was she was back to feeding like normal. Wow. Um, so like I said, from there, I was motivated to get training and be able to serve moms. And then on Guam, I began to offer one-on-one private lactation consultations because I realized that that is what was needed. That was mm-hmm. what was missing. So on Guam, you they don't really have breastfeeding classes either. <clears throat> but what I realized was that most women were in need of someone who could talk with them, find out what was going on in their home, find out their history with breastfeeding, find out their history, if there's any kind of sexual assault and all that kind of stuff, things that are barriers for breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. and then offer recommendations based on that. Instead of just telling a woman, hey, you should breastfeed, or hey, you should breastfeed for six months, you have to know the woman. The woman has to know you care before she's going to care anything about what you say. So on Guam, I began to really just get to know the women, get to, um, and they would, one thing I love about Guam as well is because it's so communal, if you start helping one woman, she's going to tell her sister and her Mm -hmm. girlfriend and all that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of how I did it. I was doing it part time because my husband was on a ship, so he was moving a lot. And I began to see a lot of the same things, a lot of the same ideas that like a woman needs to pump very early on. And this idea that colostrum wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. during those first few days or um just little things like every woman needed a breast shield or just little things like that and I just was motivated and I felt like literally I was being woken up at night feeling like I needed to write and purge all these things that I was mm-hmm. absorbing when I would meet these moms yeah. and that's how Milk Boss came it was literally an overflowing of something I just couldn't keep inside anymore mm-hmm. And so literally my husband would be underway and I'd be taking care of these two small kids by myself during the day. And then when they would go to sleep, I would get out my laptop and I would just begin to type and type and type and type and type. And I would just keep certain moms in mind as I was typing and um, thinking if they didn't have their babies yet and they were pregnant, I would be thinking, what is it that I think she would want to know? And I met so many women also where I would ask them, Hey, do you need help? Do you need support? Would you like me to come by? And they would say no. And I think it's because women were ashamed and felt like they should know how to breastfeed. They shouldn't need any help. And so I felt like, okay, I need to put that in the book. That's not true. Breastfeeding is uh, at least a minimum, a two person job. Every mom I see, I say breastfeeding is a minimum two person job in the very beginning. There needs to be someone there trying to keep the baby awake, someone there who's giving you water, someone there who's helping you to relax and make sure that you're, you know, leaning back and not hunching over and all of that kind of stuff. And so I just began to put all of that down on paper. And uh, there were a few things that also stood out to me. I was like, what is preventing, I think, a lot of the moms from reaching out for breastfeeding support or connecting with the support that's already out there? Yeah. You know, because like we mentioned in the beginning, the moms who know they want a breastfeeder, know they want a natural birth, are already going to be looking for lactation professionals, are already going to be looking for doulas. But why is it that there are these other moms who, in the back of their mind, know they want to breastfeed but are not looking out for these? And so mm-hmm. I thought, you know, one, I want to make sure this book doesn't seem intimidating. I want a woman to kind of feel like this book is a natural extension of a magazine or something that she's already going to be picking up to read. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you won't find any breastfeeding photos. You won't find any breastfeeding diagrams. And that was on purpose. And I know that some people might be like, well, you're not providing the real education. It's like, actually, no, you can go pretty much on any Pinterest. You can go on Pinterest and Google all the breastfeeding photos you want and all the anatomy things. And you can hear all the different suggestions you should make or suggestions on what you should do with breastfeeding. But what's in this book is all the things that they're not telling you Mm. about how to build a a support system around yourself, what I call your breastfeeding tribe, how to manage that very first feeding in detail. Like in the back of the book, I write in detail. I've typed out in detail something that someone can read to you who's sitting at your bedside in the hospital, how to get that first latch right, how to evaluate that first latch and see if it feels right. 
all of that. That's the stuff that's not out there. They show you a picture of how to latch the baby. They show you what the baby's mouth should look like. But when I go and see moms, it's the tiny things like the hand placement, the thumb placement around the breast, um, how high up the baby is, what you're doing with your shoulders. Those are the tiny nuances that really make a difference in how comfortable and relaxed a woman feels at a feeding that makes them, it makes a big difference on how she goes. And if she continues to breastfeed, if a woman begins to have back pain early on, you know, and she feels like she, it, this, I feel like it all needed to be broken down. Mm-hmm. And then also the postpartum time, a lot of women feel trapped with breastfeeding. They feel like they, um, are the sole ones having to take care of everything. Mm-hmm. And as far as actually nourishing the baby, yes, they are the sole ones who can do it. But there are many things that their support system can do yeah. to help them. Yeah. Bring them meals, make sure that they're um, having a chance to step away. And I, th- I, I firmly believe in the idea of postpartum care and nourishment for the mom and allowing her to stay in the home and rest. But I also think that the modern mama feels a need to step out into the world a little bit sooner than traditionally practiced. You know, Mm -hmm. like I think that the mom needs permission to say, I can step out of the house. Even if it's just for a walk around the block without my baby, I need that. And so we talk about that in the book, like how to do that when you can do that. Um, and I also just provide suggestions on how to do that even throughout the first postpartum year, because a lot of women I'll meet who decide to breastfeed think they can never go on a trip, think they can never go out with their girlfriends at night and have a drink. And so I just want to, I wanted to offer women permission to be both a mother, but also connect with their own self and their passions, even after they, after they give birth. Yeah. Well, the book is incredible. And like I said, we, we got our hands on a couple just right, right when you first launched them. And, you know, it's, it's not just a book, it's, it's actually a journal and a guide. And so the book, like Angelica was saying, it's, it's like a magazine, like you look through it and it's just, it's just like, it's beautiful to touch. It's beautiful to look at. It feels, I actually, you know, my personal experience of picking it up was that I like, I had tears in my eyes. I felt like if I'd had a book like this, if I'd had this kind of support and this kind of encouragement when I was first nursing a baby, it would have been a totally different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just there's so much like guidance in the book, but not in the way that you would typically think of a guide. Like it's really it's really kind of just like creating this space for, um, you know, certainly for experiencing and, and kind of documenting the journey as you go, but really like Angelica said, for um, creating that tribe and identifying your personal goals. Like every, you know, it's it's yeah. one thing to say you want to breastfeed. Well, what does that mean? Do you, does, do you want yeah. to breastfeed and be able to travel with your baby? Do you want to breastfeed and are you going to need to go back to work in a month or three months or six months or whatever? Do you want to breastfeed, but you want your husband to be able to also you know, give the baby bottles, uh, you know, in regular mm-hmm. interval, regular intervals, or you want your nanny to be able to do that from time to time? Like, what are your specific mm-hmm. goals? And I think that that's so key. And that's not what we're planning for. We're planning for, I want to breastfeed. And then everything kind of just doesn't, doesn't fit the way we think it will, because we didn't really think about those little individual pieces. And the other piece that I love about the book is that it kind of like, it goes through like, okay, here's, you know, here's your plan A, like, here's how you want it, you know, here's how you want things to, to look. But what if they, what if there are some hurdles or some obstacles that mean it looks a little bit different? And how can you sort of adjust to that? And how can you still move forward? It's, there's no like, it, we can be so black and white with breastfeeding. It's, yes, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it's not black and white. Yeah. yeah. And also every speaking, woman's journey is different. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking to that thing you said earlier, too, where I feel like it's a tool for people to kind of move past that idea where it's like, oh, it's natural and I'll just figure it out. Yeah. And like you yeah. said, there's so many people who have that approach to breastfeeding where they're like, oh, like I watched the baby led breastfeeding video. It looks like the baby's just going to crawl right over on the breast. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're just going to breastfeed. I've seen it like it, yeah. like it's you know, and anyone can do it an animal can do it I can do it and it's like of so. course you can do it the the can and the want are so strong mm-hmm. but the how and the when is what that yeah. and is that is that piece that I feel like that your book is touching is the figuring it out for yourself like like Melissa thank said, you setting those goals and also just being being in a real space with yourself Yep. And with your community, yep. like this is how it's really happening. And Laura can attest, mm-hmm. you know, I have a six month old baby and we had a hell of a time getting breastfeeding going. And 
I like honestly some some days I felt bad about how many te- times I texted her and said it, it sucks like it's not working <laughs> and you know like I had moments where I was like I shouldn't send that text like I'm just being the annoying friend that no. can't figure out breastfeeding but like I knew that she, and it wasn't just her I had other support as well but I knew like if I don't do this I won't be breastfeeding in a month like exactly if I don't exactly. reach out if I don't keep doing this like I'm going to keep hitting this button again and again and again and again because this is the only way I'm going to get through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm like nodding my head over and over again. Yes, yes, yes. To everything that you guys are saying, because that is what I want to get across. Breastfeeding looks different for every mother. Yeah. Every mother has different goals. What are they? Mm-hmm. How can we give women permission to embrace that and not feel guilty for whatever choice they make? And it's okay not to love it every minute. You know, that's the other thing is I think when we have these gorgeous breastfeeding photos, which are fine, we give the impression that breastfeeding is like angelic and magical all the time. Yeah. And that's not true. So I didn't want there to be any standard that women were trying to compare themselves to. I didn't want them evaluating any photos to see if they were doing it just like that. I really want it to be, like you said, a space, yeah. a free space to put in what you want and to get the support that you need to have your goals met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we think you nailed it. It's, it just, it (laughs) looks and feels just right. So yeah, we're, we're really excited about it and we're actually going to do a giveaway of the book. Um, so we'll have details. Yeah. We'll have details on our Instagram page. We'll do it, um, this week that we launched the episode. So, um, head over to our Instagram page where you will see details for the giveaway. Um, some very, very lucky mama is going to have this journal and guide in their hands and it's yeah, we, we know you're going to love it. So um, do you have a final piece of wisdom or anything that you want to share with our listeners, Angelica? I think the biggest thing is to go with that mama wisdom, like I said, and that goes with, you know, choosing your provider who's going to be there for your birth, choosing a lactation professional, um, choosing, you know, whoever is going to take care of your child once you go back to work, if you're going to be doing that. Um, just never allowing someone to squash that mama wisdom. And if you feel like that's happening at any point in time, that person's probably not the right person for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I strongly, strongly believe in that. And then I also believe in finding community. So if in-person community, I love the virtual space. I love yeah. Instagram and the beautiful hashtags where you can, you know, find other women who are like you, but finding that in-person support. So like a mama circle gathering or something like that, where they're honoring this transition that you're making, um, that can be really helpful. And so I'll begin to do things like that here in Seattle. So if mamas are interested in that, you know, they can check me out and they'll find out what I'm offering. But I think that's very, very important. Well, we will share links to your website and any, you know, any of these kinds of things that you're talking about. And obviously to the book, um, that'll all be in the show notes on the blog. So our listeners can check that out and, and see the specific details. So, Thank you so much, Angelica. Thank it's you. just been fantastic chatting with you. We've Thank you, ladies. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and chat with you guys and the, the women and men who are listening. <laughs> Hopefully there's a few men. All right. Well, thanks so much, Angelica. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook where we have all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Laura and Melissa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. 